This podcast is brought to you by Lauren Zander, the author of a new book entitled Maybe It's You. Cut the crap, face your fears, and love your life. Please listen to podcast number 665 with our author, Lauren Zander. If for any reason you feel like you need a kick in the butt and want to get real with yourself about what is keeping you from getting what you want out of your life, then you are going to want to listen to this no-holds-barred interview. She is lively, real, and knows what it takes to break through your self-imposed barriers and the mind games we all play with ourselves that keeps us from attracting the wealth, relationships, and happiness we're all looking for in life. Let Lauren be your guide as we discuss the revealing content in her book, Maybe It's You. Please listen to podcast number 665 with author, coach, and consultant Lauren Handel Zander. If you want to learn more about Lauren's company, Handel Group, please go to www.handelgroup.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Bill, as I do, every time I come on these shows, I say thank you to the audiences that over the last 14 years have continued to listen to these podcasts uh, from the words of wisdom from our authors. And today, joining me from Stanford, actually he's not in Stanford today, this is Friday, so he's taking the day off, Uh, but he's at his home and he is a professor at Stanford University. And I found out about Bill through a friend, and Bill Burnett uh, has a course at Stanford called Designing Your Life. And, you know, the way that he approaches it, for all my listeners, uh, is fascinating. I recommend that you actually go out and, if you would, listen to the TEDx Stanford talk because it's fascinating. Um, I've actually watched it two or three times. So I think you'll get a lot out of it. But I'm going to let my listeners know a tad bit about you, Bill. Uh, As I said, he's the executive director of the design program at Stanford. Uh, He directs the undergraduate and graduate program in design at Stanford, both uh, interdepartmental programs between the mechanical engineering department and the art department. Uh, He got his bachelor's and master's in product design at Stanford and has worked professionally on a wide variety of projects ranging from award-winning Apple PowerBook to the original Hasbro Star Wars action figures. He holds a number of mechanical and design patents and design awards for a variety of products, including the first Slate computer. In addition to his duties at Stanford, he is on the board of VOZ, pronounced VOZ, which is in Spanish, and it's a social responsible high-fashion startup and advises several internet startup companies. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks for being on. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a a pleasure to have you on. And uh, I always love guests like yourself. They're coming from academia. And I've done a lot of academia interviews. And I think you bring a unique perspective because not only have you been out in business um, working with companies and then coming back into Stanford, but you bring this unique perspective because you actually get the time to actually design courses like these. Um, whereas people out in the business world, usually they don't have the time to do that. Yeah, so exactly. it, is, it, is a, it is a great thing. So Bill, you know, let's start with this. In the introduction to the book, which is some of the best place to start, and also for my listeners, I want to mention this, and you'll find it in the blog that we write here, 
uh, about Bill and Designing Your Life. There is a course on Creative Live, and it's currently on special. I don't know how long it's going to last on special, but Creative Life on Live, um, it's creativelive.com. We'll put a link in the blog. Excellent place to go and learn. Uh, Bill has two things here. There's a book at Amazon, and there's a workbook. So we will put links to both of those as well. So your comment in the introduction in designing your life is that when you think like a designer, when you're willing to ask the questions, and when you realize that life is always about designing something that has never existed before, then your life can sparkle in a way that you never imagined. How do you help prepare not only the students, but let's just talk about our listeners. If our yeah. listeners out there right now and they're stuck, how do you prepare them to think like a designer and ask the right questions so they can redesign their life? Well, you just mentioned the, 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 the big problem that everybody told us about. You know, we're, we're, we're designers and we use our method to design stuff. So we went out and we talked to people. We said, what's, what's the problem? Why are, you, why, are, why are you struggling? And everybody said, I'm stuck. Either I'm stuck because, you know, it's too late, I, I picked the wrong thing to do and now it's too late to change, or I'm stuck because, you know, I, I want to do this one thing, but I can't make any money at that. And, you know, so the thing that, the thing that would have meaning in my life, you know, I can't make any money. The thing that I make money, I don't care about. So everybody reported themselves as stuck. And, um, you know, when I, most of my classes that I teach, I'm teaching design to young students who want to become designers. And I tell them, look, as a designer, you've signed up to, design things that never been never existed before right there was never when i was at apple there was no such thing as a as you know a, a, the modern laptop and we kind of invented that and we just sort of built lots and lots of prototypes until we figured out what one might look like and same thing with the iphone you know they showed the if you remember in isaacson's biography of steve jobs they showed the iphone to steve three times and they weren't really sure kind of what the new what a new smartphone was so when you when you sign up to be a designer you sign up to just solve a lot of problems and you get stuck a lot so designers have evolved a method of uh, lots and lots of methods of getting unstuck, in, including things like brainstorming and mind mapping and, and all the techniques we teach our students. But since we knew in the book we wouldn't be sitting next to you and we couldn't sort of help you learn, you know, by, by showing you or, or modeling these, these sorts of things, um, we, go, we went back to what we, we call the sort of five mindsets for a designer. When you, when you think about people who do uh, creative things for a living, designers or artists or writers or, you know, or bloggers or people who do the things you do, or you're creating original content, um, you kind of have to think about things differently. You know, most of my students at Stanford have been trained to be, you know, really rational and rational, skeptical and how to, you know, break an argument down and, and create a a clear sort of um, counter argument, but that's not a very useful way to think when you're trying to invent new stuff. So we start by trying to get people to remember, you know, that when you were a little kid, you were just deeply curious. Curiosity is the number one mindset of a designer. You're curious about the world. You're curious about how things work. You, you don't have any preconceptions as a kid because you just don't know that much yet. So you're always asking, you know, why and how and, how does this work? And why do you do that that way? And, and, you know, if you've ever had a three or four or five-year-old, you know how persistent their, their curiosity can be. So we start with curiosity. And I think most people, once they, they, they start thinking a little bit more curiously, you know, it's kind of energetic. It's kind of fun. 
Uh, and then we say, okay, well, then it's all about radical collaboration. Go out in the world because, you know, if you could figure out your, if you could just sit in a room and think really hard and figure out your life, that'd be great. But it doesn't really work that way because no matter what you come up with as a plan, it's not going to work really that way. The world is complicated. You know, the world's needs change, your needs change, jobs change, you know, companies change. You need to be out in the world collaborating with people because that's where the action is. And then it's, you know, also this idea of um, prototyping all the time. We call it, you know, just building your way forward. It's like, since you don't know what the future is going to look like anyway, why don't you just try something? Bias to action. Build your way forward. So these mindsets kind of get you unstuck. And I think um, we, we lean on them pretty hard in the book because it's, it's easy. You know, when I just explained it, like, hey, start with, you know, why, instead of being skeptical, why don't you be curious? Instead of trying to figure it out by yourself, why don't you go get some friends and, you know, talk it through. And instead of sitting home planning and trying to, you know, kind of muscle your way through being stuck, why don't you just go out and, you know, get curious and talk to some people and try some things. But it's a messy process, isn't it? And I think that Very messy. You know, many of these uh, individuals you were discussing, how linear they're trying to think when they want to uh, come back with some type of paper or program. And you and I know, because I'm a serial entrepreneur, that, you know, you can do 100 business plans. Right. It hardly ever, ever works out like the business plan you created. Right. Designing your life is the same way. I think that our lives are very messy. Uh, they take twists and turns and all kinds of things. And I think your part about radical collaboration is so very important because you speak passionately about it in the TEDx talk. And you say, because the answers are out in the world with other people, right? And I think that's an important point. So if, if that is such an important point, what is the one thing you would tell our listeners to do either on a daily basis or a frequent basis so that they're building these mastermind groups or these teams of people or, mm. or whatever they're doing, because those are the kind of folks that are going to jolt their ideas. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're also going to be the ones that sometimes are the doomsayers. You know, they always say, well, don't listen to these doomsayers because these people are going to tell you you're all screwed up and you don't have a good idea, but designing your life is kind of the same way because people are going to go, well, you know, I wanted to go to work at the zoo. And they're going to go, what do you mean at the zoo? You never had any background working at the zoo. And I like what you said. You said that they did these studies that we have about seven and a half. I don't know where the hell the half came from, but seven and a half different things that we like to do. So you'd explain to our audience that's listening out there that, you know, hey, it's a messy process, but this book, this course could mm -hmm. help you make it a little less messy. Yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, from, from, from being a creative person yourself, design itself is a messy process. You know, we didn't, we didn't go, Oh, what's a laptop look like? And then just go make one. We tried hundreds of different failed, you know, ideas for laptops when I was at Apple. Um, but look, the, 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 the power tool here is, is the world and how you interact with it. Right. And, and if you go out in the world and you, and you're curious, the, the trick is don't don't go out in the world and ask people, hey, what should I do? Or, you know, uh, you know, what do you think? Give me some advice because one, advice is only as good as the people giving it. And two, they don't really know you. What we say is, you know, instead, go out and get people's stories. People are, you know, we live inside the story of our lives. We are natural storytellers. I think the first cave people, you know, sitting on a rock around a fire probably went, you know, 
Hey, how was your day? You know, oh, not so good. I didn't catch anything today. You know, whatever. I mean, we, we love to tell stories. And so the idea of a prototype experience or a prototype interview is to just go out and, and talk to people and say, hey, hey, how did you end up uh, with this? You know, you've been doing this for 14 years. How did you end up with this podcast and this blog? And tell me your story. And when you hear other people's stories, you find out it's never a straight line. Never. Uh, we have in the class, we bring what we call mentor visitors. And we find people that have been reasonably successful or people that, you know, that the students might admire. And we say, come in and tell your story, but tell the truth. Tell us and start from, I was 18 and I didn't know what I was doing and I went to college. And then I picked this major and I hated it. And then, you know, and then I picked this one and this one. And finally I ended up with this one. And then I worked for five years and I hated it. You know, it's like, tell us, tell it forward the way it really happened and don't clean up the messy parts. And, and every time we do that, the students are just amazed at like, wow, yeah. you, you didn't have it figured out? You, you look so successful now, Greg. I mean, well, and as you know, it's hardly ever figured out. And I love this because, you know, I think even Steve Jobs said this in the address that he made to Stanford. And, and there's now a lot of, uh, there's a conundrum here about finding your passion. Yeah, yeah. And I ask this because, you know, in many of the commencement speeches, it's like, well, go get, find your passion, you know, yeah. find out what you really want to do. I the old that. adage was that we needed to work on finding this passion. And I think I spent a lot of time trying to find that passion. I'm like, well, I, I, sometimes I don't know where it is. But yeah. Paul O'Keefe and Carol Dweck in their recent article in the Journal of Psychological Services say, we need to develop our we need to develop our passion. And I'm, I'm not certain that I agree. How do you help people um, find this? Yeah. Why yeah. is it bad advice right now to go out and really say, well, you know what? You need to know what your purpose and your passion are because the whole world of personal growth probably, and that's why I was attracted to you, I'll be honest with you, you know, you and Cal Newport and a lot of people are saying, mm -hmm. you're contrarians. You're, you're out there in the world today saying, it isn't really about finding your passion, is right. it? So. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about this. And Cal Newport's one of the guys who, that we cite in, in some of the stuff we do. And look, you know, this is a class we teach at Stanford. Um, it's about 10 years old now. And, you know, we, we, we're in a research university. You can't just make stuff up. You can't just say, oh, follow your passion. I mean, what, what, where's the data that says that works? So, in fact, there's a guy over um, at the Stanford Center for the Study of Adolescence, a guy named Bill Damon, who's a great guy. And he wrote a book called Path to Purpose. And when he did the research, he said, look, only 20% of the people that I survey can identify any one singular passion. I got dabblers. I got dreamers. I got, you know, um, uh, folks that are broken. I got people that are just wandering around. But mostly they're not pa passion, you know, seekers. Um, and so we hate a question where you go, okay, uh, do you have a passion? Eight out of 10 people go, no. We go, oh, all right, well, come back when you have a passion, we'll help you. I mean, that, that just, yeah. And, and Cal Newport's stuff and a couple of other things, passion emerges typically after a lot of hard work and a lot of fumbling around. You try this, you try that, you try this, you try something, it starts to work, you know, goes from a job to a career and you really get into it and pretty soon it becomes your calling or your passion. But it's an end, an end state. It's not that you don't start with it. Now, in some cases, the people who identify passions early in their lives are typically in the arts. 
they know they want to sing, they want to dance, they want to perform, they want to do something. There's something in them that directs them towards that. And you really have to have a passion for that because most of our culture tells you, oh, you can't make a living doing that. That's crazy, right? But, um, but for most people, passions, uh, you know, I talk to my students or I talk to people who come to the seminars that we do and they say, I don't know, I've got four or five things I like. I don't know if any of them are a passion. And the other thing is, it's kind of a setup. Just because you are passionate about something doesn't mean the world needs it or wants it, right? I mean, so I'm passionate. I'm passionate about becoming a zookeeper. It's like, well, guess what? We got plenty of zookeepers and there's no jobs. Right, right. They don't have a PhD in zoology, so or whatever you need for for, for zoo work. So right. You can have a job. I mean, it's it, it's kind of a cruel setup because one, it makes people feel like they're stuck because they don't have one. Eight out of ten. And two, even once you kind of identify something, there's no connection necessarily between that and what the world needs. So, you know, we say a better thing is just let's start with empathy. Empathy for yourself. Let's do identify the things that, you know, that that have some resonance in you, some interest in you. Um, And then go out and, but more importantly, go out in the world and find out what the world needs. What does the world need you to do right now? What, What are the things that you might be naturally good at that the world needs. And, you know, the other thing is, until you get into something, you kind of don't know if you're any good at it. But how well, would you know up front that you've got to be a good zookeeper? Now, you're working with hundreds of students that are coming through your classes and yeah. engineers, right? So, look, my son's a, a, dis- a lot of them. AI, has a master's degree in AI. You know, the whole world's looking for guys that can do AI work, and he's never out of work. But right. the, my point is, you... it. I'm not saying that you're a little bit jaded, but I'm saying, look, look at all the other people that are going, that maybe aren't even going to college, right. are going to college, and they're spending years getting these degrees. What advice would you have at the end? And they get this degree and they go, shit, I don't even know why I got that damn degree because I didn't even like what I was studying, right? So, you know, and I run into this all the time. I mean, this kids come in, they're freshmen, and I go, what do you want to do? And they go, oh, I want to do, you know, I want to do AI. I want to do computer science. I want to do, I want to go to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. I go, why? And they go, well, my dad's I an engineer. I can make money. Yeah, or, my dad's an engineer. Or I could make, they told me I could make money. Or, right. or um, my, uh, my science teacher in high school liked me. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's that thin, what, what, what's driving this. Right. Um, Look, it's one, there's no, the research says 10 years out of school, only 20% of the people are doing anything that had anything to do with what they studied in college. The connection between your major and what you do in life is pretty tenuous. Two, that's because you picked it when you're 18 and you really want your 18 year old telling your 40 year old what he's going to do for a living. I mean, that seems like a crazy idea, right? Um, (laughs) And three, uh, it's more, it's actually a more fun life. It's a more generative life. If you take the point of view of prototyping. So, you know, I prototyped what I wanted to be in college and now I tried for a few years and it turns out that's not that interesting to me, but there's always something available that's interesting. And look, this isn't, you know, the, one of the critiques we get is, yeah, it's Stanford kids and you know, they're all smart and they'll be fine. We've just finished, we're, we're trying to transfer this class off campus, and we've just finished training 56 other universities to teach this, including Cal State, Dominguez Hills, and a bunch of other uh, community colleges. At Cal State, Dominguez Hills, they've already run 300 or 600 kids through this in the last two years. These are not kids that come in, coming from privilege like Stanford kids. These are kids that are, you know, 70% first generation to go to college, 20%. Families living below the poverty line. They have 5% of their students 
who are homeless. And they're learning how to design their lives and learning how to figure out, you know, with their curiosity, what's available. And they're, you know, obviously different things are available to them than a kid coming out of Stanford with a master's in AI. But there's always something there. There's always something available. And you can always be in the cycle of trying to better yourself and better your connection to the world by having empathy for what the world needs. Look, nobody wants to work. No, I don't think anybody really wants to work uh, and, and not be appreciated for what they do. And whether you're a teacher, a social worker, an engineer, a scientist, you know, a guy on the production line making Teslas, it can be a great life if you choose, you know, choose it well, right? So if you think about your life as this design problem and you're always making a better version of the next version of you, because design's pretty neutral as a, as a value system. There's only one thing in design. You always try to make the next design better, right? You're always trying to improve the design. Now, I've accidentally worked on some design teams where the product came out pretty bad. Um, but that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to make it better. We just screwed up. So, um, you know, I think it, it has nothing to do with where you start and whether you, you know, start with know education and privilege or not it, it's just a matter of once you activate these designer mindsets yeah yes exactly you start to discover all the stuff that's available and when you get good at matching what the world needs and what you like to do you know it gets really fun well let's talk about those because you speak about it in your tedx talk and you also talk about it in the book and it's interesting because there was a correlation in my recent book with a couple of these things as well Mm-hmm. So you have what you call five design thinking ideas that you discuss in your book and on the TEDx talk. Yeah. And you can discuss those with our listeners, their degree of importance with relation to this designing this ideal life and career. One of yours is connecting the dots. The other mm-hmm. is a gravity problem. Yeah. Right. And I, I think when you put it in the context, you use reframing a lot as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the, the reality is for our listeners that are out there right now, they're probably saying, well, Bill, what are some of these design tools? What is it that I have to shift in my mindset to, to actually make a shift in the way in which I approach how I'm going to design my life? Yeah. Because yours is the first course that I've seen of all of them. I mean, I've been to Tony Robbins. I've been to this one. I've been to that one. I've been to hundreds of these things because I'm a personal growth junkie and I'm in this business. Right. But this one is unique folks. I'm trying to tell my listeners that it's unique. And if you really understand what Bill and his uh, Dave were trying to do here, which is the co-author of the book, by the way, which I should have given some credit. Well, yeah, let me, let's give a shout out to exactly. Dave Evans because none of this would have happened without my good buddy, Dave. Uh, exactly. And I, and I apologize for co- that. Co-founder here. Listening to this podcast, my apologies, Dave, because <laughs> he is at least 50% or more of what this book and course is all about. So at any rate, talk to us about the connecting the dots and the gravity problems and reframing yeah. all yeah. the things that you use. Well, you know, in, the, in, in TED Talks, they say, you got to get, you got to make it quick and you got to make it, you know, succinct. So we try to pick the five things that our readers are telling us. Yeah, this is, was, I, this, I did this exercise, it was really useful. So, you know, everybody wants to have a meaningful life. That's, that's the goal. We want to know that when we die at the end, you know, we, people will say yeah, he lived a good life and he was a good person and that he did something, he or she did something meaningful. So this idea of connecting the dots, Steve Jobs referred to it in his commencement speech you were mentioning, uh, like, you can only connect the dots, you know, in hindsight, like how did one thing lead to another? 
but we think you can put a li- you can put a little bit of a spin on that. And we say, write, write, write a work view, write 250 words of what is your theory of work? Why do we work? What's work for? And then write 250 words on the meaning of life, your life view. And then look at, it doesn't matter what those individually are, but what matters is that the two are coherent, that the two make sense together. That when I talk about work and making money and, you know, what I do for a living, and I talk about life and giving back and, you know, being a good person or whatever, whatever those are, that there's a connection. And that's the connecting the dots. And the, the research shows that when you can connect the way you hold the meaning of life, your life view, with the, the work that you do, you'll experience your life as meaningful. So it's a pretty simple exercise. We call it building a compass, work and life view. Then don't get stuck on problems you can't solve. I mean, this is, some of this is, you know, 3,000-year-old wisdom traditions, you know. Yeah, grant me the serenity, you know, to, to not work on stuff I can't. I can't solve. We call them gravity problems, problems where it's just, it's just the, it, it, that's the way it is. It's not going to change no matter what you do. And your only choice on a, with a gravity problem is to you know, kind of accept this is not a changeable problem, reframe to something that is possible, and then see if you can problem solve on that. So don't get stuck on gravity problems. The, you know, the, the three-year odyssey plan is kind of the core of the class, and it's really important. And part of it is, like you said, there's not one, there's not just one life that, that's possible. There's lots of different lives that's possible. I mean, think about all the choices you made in your life. And boy, if you'd picked it slightly different, if you'd gone to the, the here instead of there or taken this job, not that job, everything would have been different, right? Um, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up outside of Boston, um, got recruited to the Yale gymnastics team. I was a gymnast in high school. Um, almost went there. And then when the letter from Stanford came, I thought, oh, this is as far away from my parents as I can get. And I want to get out of town. That was my sole criteria. Um, and I took it. And, you know, had I gone to Yale, my life would have been a completely different thing because they don't have a design program there. Um, so, but so three plans. Uh, and there's magic to the number three. There's some research around why you want to brainstorm on three different options. But, you know, uh, plan one is kind of what you're doing now, but it's optimized for five years. Plan two, what happens if... You know, when, it, when what happens if the AI comes and, and it turns out they write all the blogs, they do all the podcasts, the robots do it. We don't have that job anymore. Now what's your, what's your backup plan? And then plan three is what we call the wild card plan. What would you do if you didn't care about money? You didn't care about what people think. You could go join the circus. You could, you know, go, go you know, be a zookeeper if you wanted. Um, and when people write those plans, what happens is stuff comes up for them. Old, old ideas, dreams, and wishes um, stuff that uh, need, either needs to be rethought uh, through or that needs to be put to breast and, and forgotten about. And so that's a big one. That really changes folks' folks uh, approach to life because they aren't really plans. They're just really ideations. And what happens is you realize, wow, life has more possibilities than I was giving it credit for. And then, you know, we do a lot to get people to to be able to generate more ideas. In fact, we have some research that if you take the class, this was a peer-reviewed PhD research, if you take the class, you're twice as good at ha- as having ideas, as generating ideas and ideation as you were before the class. So that's great because the more ideas you can generate, the more options you have, and the research shows the better, better choices you'll make. But then you got to get good at choosing because, you know, there's this whole thing about I got too many choices and I can't decide. Um, my students, and I know a lot of people nowadays are, you know, this little, they call FOMO, fear of missing out. Well, what if, what if I miss out on the really good options? And so we looked at the research from the positive psychology guys, Dan Gilbert and others about how do you make good choices? 
A lot of that has to do with bringing in more than just your rational mind, but bringing in emotional intelligence and other, you know, other ways of knowing. We call it discernment. Uh, and then the the big piece of research is if you make a choice after you've chosen from a lot of good options, you've got to make the choice irrevocable. You've literally got to shut down all your other options and just burn the boats and move forward. If you keep your options open, you you pretty much destroy the the possibility of being happy with the choice you made. And that's a hard, it was a hard one for me because I like, I like the idea of keeping my options open, but the research is pretty clear that if you're going to choose well, you have to choose once you make, once you make the choice, you have to go all in. And then, well, and, then makes- and, and, and if you're good at making options and you go all in and six months later, that doesn't turn out that the choice was a good one. You just make some more options and go again. Well, and while that makes perfect sense, right. To say, Hey, choose the option and go all in, go forward. Um, I, I think there's with a lot of people and me included, maybe you as well. I'm not certain, but it's like, well, I left all these other opportunities behind as well. And maybe, well, maybe someday or, you know, and, and I have been that constant optimist, uh, proverbial entrepreneur looking at all of those things. And I, and I love what you're saying about making the choice and, and moving forward. Now in your chapter on prototyping, you state that building is thinking. You state that when an idea is coupled with the bias to action mindset, that you get yeah. a lot of building and thinking, um, which is kind of what it is. Now, we're talking about prototyping here, and you had mentioned this Odyssey plan. You're kind of prototyping three different versions. Yeah. Three versions of your, of your possible life. people out there who haven't, you know, you and I are coming from a bias already, I've prototyped products. I've developed things over in China. I've brought them in. I've done all kinds of things in my life that maybe the average person listening to this show is going, well, no, I haven't done any of that. I've always worked for IBM or I've worked for somebody else. And we were, we never did any of this. I just sat behind a desk, but Bill, Greg, I'm just tired of sitting behind this desk. I want to try something new. Tell them about prototyping and why it's so important. Yeah, you know, as a designer, prototyping is one of the ways we build. We build to think. We build stuff to see. You know, try to figure figure things out. But in life design, prototyping really is that sort of, um, you know, a, a strategy for trying something before you make a big commitment. Uh, learning something. Every prototype is a learning experience. So even if the prototype quote fails, you've learned something, right? You tried something. And prototypes in this case are really, you know, supposed to be simple, fast, easy things to do. A, a, a information interview is a prototype. Um, talking to somebody about something you might be interested in to find out what it's really like. What's what's the day in the life of somebody who runs a you know a podcast for fourteen years? Um, people, uh, you know, I think the it's natural to be afraid of trying new things. Because most of the time people imagine, well, to try this new thing, I have to quit my job and go do this new thing. And then what if it doesn't work out? Or what if I don't like it? And you don't have to do that. You know, you can do everything from, you know, an information interview to shadowing somebody for a day to doing a one week project and something you might be interested in to, to, you know, inventing, you know, an internship as a side hustle for somebody working for them for, you know, you know, there's lots and lots of ways we call it sneaking up on your future. Um, you know, the, the science fiction writer William Gibson has his famous quote, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So my, my argument is, there's, if, I don't care what you want to be. You want to be a beekeeper. You want to be, you know, a clown at Cirque du Soleil. There's somebody who's already doing it or has done it. 
by, by talking to them, by shadowing them, by living with them for a few hours to a few days, you can discover what it is like to be that person. You can actually time travel into the future, meet a person just like you would be if you were doing that five years from now. And you get a felt experience. You get a sense of something, we call it narrative resonance. You know, when you have two tuning forks and they're both at the same frequency, you hit one, the other one starts vibrating. If you start literally paying attention to how you're feeling as you're talking to these people or experiencing their world a little bit, you get a felt sense. This is back to the, that you know, emotional intelligence. You get a sense of whether or not this might be a, a fit for you or something that would work. And that's really powerful information because that'll either pull you towards something or just as, just as valuable. You know, a lot of times you meet somebody and you discover, wow, this is nothing like what I thought. This is not interesting at all, you know, or, or um, what makes this successful is not the kind of thing I like to do. You know, a lot of, it's very interesting, a lot of people, when they think about changing their life, they think, oh, I know, I'll, 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 uh, I'll work for myself. I'll become a consultant. Then I'll, then I'll, I'll be my own boss and I'll, I'll get to do just the work I love to do. Now, you and I both know, because we've done this consulting thing, that actually, when you're a consultant, you have hundreds of, you have dozens of bosses, you have all your clients are your bosses, and they're all independently irrational, and they all independently want their project to be first, and they don't care about anybody else's project. So you really have lots of bosses. And second of all, the way you're successful at being a consultant isn't doing good work. It's selling well. It's selling your work well. So a lot of people I know think that consulting is going to be, I'm going to have all this time and I can do my own thing and do whatever I want to. And I, you know, I just, I just do the work I love. And then you discover I have a bunch of bosses. They're all jerks. And all I'm doing is selling. <laughs> so all you would and, have. And I can, and I can actually adhere to that. I mean, yeah. I shouldn't say adhere to it. I, I can relate to that because I do consulting. This podcast show is not, how I make a living really this podcast show is how I learn and how I teach other people. And I do this at, out of really just this passion uh, for helping people learn. And, and I think that's, you, you state something really interesting because it, whether you're a consultant or the zookeeper or you're the AI guy or whatever you are, you have this chapter on happiness, choosing happiness, right? Yeah. And I think in the end, whether it's a little bit of this or a little bit of that that makes up your career. Because look, the way I look at it is I don't have one career. I have these parallel kind of universes that, you know, you talked about in here. Yeah, but really, sure. I'm living in a, made it real. I'm actually trying to live in a third dimensional world in two dimensions, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. And I am using some of the techniques of the shaman to expand the conscious, my own consciousness to say, you know, how do I perceive this world? And when you're designing something, it's so important to me, you know, when people say hacking flow and they're going to take some mushrooms and get into a higher level of consciousness and then they're going to have this great trip and come back and things are going to change. No matter what you're doing to push the boundaries of performance, right, as somebody who's out there, the key is being happy. And you said, well, you're not going to click your heels together three times and go to this happy place. You no. The secret to life design is learning to choose well. So here's my question for you, Bill. Yeah. If you can't leave that one thing behind and you do work 
in three different kind of, I'm going to call them parallel worlds. Like right. there's the Bill who writes the book and does the course. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Bill who does the research. And then there's the Bill who does the design thing. Speak of that about that a little bit, because I think all of us have multiple interests and we're kind of like, well, we might be a little bit confused about how these things relate to one another and how we actually make something yeah. out of it. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, um, you know, I, I, I do have those parallel lives. I'm also uh, starting up a career as an artist. I'm a painter and, and I teach and I also have to run the darn program and raise money and do these other things. Right. Now, I mean, I think it's a pretty modern idea, maybe even just in the last 50 years, that your job, your one job is going to make you happy and it's going to provide you with intellectual and, you know, sort of emotional fulfillment. I don't know about you, my, my grandparents were immigrants. They came over from Germany in the, in the late 30s. My grandfather didn't like the way things were going uh, in Germany in 1938, so he decided to pull the family out and come to America. But he took any job he could get. He was to, his, his mission was to make the family safe and provide. Um, you know, and classic American dream, and he, and he sent his kids to the community college, and they sent their kids to Stanford. So, you know, it, everybody... everybody uh, did what they needed to do to make it work. Um, so I think there's, uh, there's two things in that chapter. One is you got to choose well. And the, the evidence is pretty clear that happiness doesn't come from getting all the things you want. Happiness comes from enjoying what you have. Now, you can always aspire to more, and there's, you know, there's good and bad ways to get more. I mean, you can't just chase more all the time because that becomes kind of a crazy a crazy life and you wake up at 40 and you go, you know, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful life. My God, what have I done? Right. Um, but, but if you're, if you can learn to be happy with what you have um, and you can choose into this happiness. And I, I don't mean that in a, a Pollyanna kind of, Oh, the world is always good. And all you have to do is see, you know, see the rainbows. Sometimes the world is hard. Sometimes you're dealing with difficult things, difficult things at work or difficult relationships or family, you know, issues or, or you know, sickness, illness. The world is what it is. Um, but you have, an, you have an option to decide your stance in that world. Um, you know, I go back to Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, where he's talking about the moment where he chose in the concentration camp. He's in a Nazi concentration camp. 90% chance he's going to be exterminated where he chose not to leave and to stay and to, because he was a doctor, to take care of the other inmates. And, and he later, you know, after he survived and wrote the book, he said, you know, as long as humans have a choice, they retain their humanity. So you can, you know, no situation is worse than, than the situation he was in. I don't, I don't care how bad your job is or how big a jerk your boss is. I mean, your boss is not a Nazi Nazi prison camp, you know. Uh, People trying to control your every move versus yeah, you having right. the choice to be able to do what you want to do when you need to do it. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, and most of us do have some kind of options to to make a choice. The other thing is, you might you, you know this modern idea of everything's going to come from my job. Look, there's your vocation, the thing you do for money, and then there's what people call your avocation, the thing you do for love. Sometimes those are the same. That'd be great, you know. I think Mother Teresa, you know, the thing she did for money. Not very much. And the things she did for love were one thing, right? Minister to the poor. But, you know, you might want to keep the things you do for love outside of the market. You know, if you're a writer or a poet or a, or a painter or something, you might not want to paint the paintings people want to paint. 
want to buy. You might want to paint your own paintings and just not, not put that on the market's terms. So be very careful about assuming that everything has to come from one place. And I think nowadays it's, it's, it's much more um, allowable, I guess. I mean, in the past, if, you know, my dad had one job, worked at HP, 41 years, retired, that was it. And he looks at me with five or six jobs and, you know, multiple things going at the same time. And he says, you know, what are you doing? You know, like, is that, is that, why don't you just get one job? I don't think that really works anymore. I think a lot of right. people, yourself and others, um, they've got the, maybe their main job there. Maybe they are at IBM, you know, and, and doing good work there. And by the way, IBM, big shout out for IBM and the group of the Austin Design Center run by Phil Gilbert. They are, they are changing that company into a, a phenomenal design company and a really, I think, fun place to work. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, you can be that IBM guy and have a side, you know, and have a, and have a garage band and play out in Austin. And, and maybe that's your thing that you do for love. Well, and I, and I think, Bill, what you're saying is that we have more choices today. We have too. way more choices. When I, when I look at my acceptable. parents, my parents were just like yours. Um, immigrated here, a little Jewish mother. My father was supposedly Catholic. But the reality was is that, you know, they worked hard, put their nose to the grindstone. Um, they didn't think about the diversion or distraction that we have today. They didn't have, you know, this multiplicity of internet and the cell phone and all these other kind of things that were that were out there to gather information they they stayed in one track and i think most people listening to this are of that kind of person i mean they're going to be people that are inquisitive naturally curious um obviously if they're listening to a podcast like this they are curious and you know i think it's i'm going to let you kind of wrap up here with one last question i have but I want to make a statement because it's it's very uh, appropriate um, that today is Dalai Lama's birthday. And I follow a lot of Buddhist things, and my listeners know that. And, you know, he had a statement, and I'm going to mess it up, but I'm going to paraphrase it anyway, that in the end, it's how much you lived, how much you loved, and how much you learned that really make the difference. Yeah. Um, and truly, when we talk about love, I know people are talking more and more about love in business, right? Mm -hmm. Empathy, compassion, love. The reality is, is that more than ever, as we see the male-dominated world shifting to more of the feminine principles, I think it's very important to understand that, that this world today, especially now, needs more people with more compassion and empathy and yeah. love. And hopefully in our businesses, we get that. Um, now, to put a kind of bow around this whole course, what I'd like to do is ask you this last question. If there was any one thing that my listeners now, after 35, 40 minutes of listening to us chat back and forth about your course and your book, and by the way, for all my listeners, we're going to be putting up the links to uh, Designing Your Life, which is the website for them. We'll put a link to the Creative Live course. We'll put a link to the Stanford uh, TEDx talk. Uh, and we will put a link wherever Bill wants us to put links. Thanks. But the point is, Bill, here, I'm now listening to you guys for 40 minutes, and maybe I know more than I did 40 minutes ago about how to design. If there was one thing, action step, that you would end this with that would propel somebody to take action because they're stuck. Because my sense is more people today are stuck than they've ever been before. Yeah. And they're stuck because they're confused about not just choices, 
but they're really just confused about defining who they are in life, right? Right. And it doesn't matter if you're 18 or you're 64. I had my birthday July 3rd. I'm 64. It doesn't matter because this can happen at any time and you get stuck. What are one of the action things you would tell people to get unstuck that would really help them get unstuck? Get them moving because we know that inertia is the worst place they can be. Yeah. Um, and, and, and get them to move forward. Well, first, congratulations on your birthday. That's Thank great. You. Um, you. Hopefully it didn't get lost in the July 4th. Uh, it uh, always does, but that's okay. There's no big deal. <laughs> you know, you, men- you mentioned love, and I'll bring it back to this idea of radical collaboration. You know, the, the, the Grant study, the Harvard study of adult development, the longest longitudinal study of human development ever, starting with the class of Harvard 1938. The guys are all, almost all dead now. And the last uh, researcher, George Valiant, said, look, you can sum up the whole piece of research, you know, it's all about love, full stop. It turns out that the thing that makes your life meaningful, the thing that means that you you live longer, you live healthier longer, you make more money, and you report your life as meaningful, had nothing to do with status or where you grew up or whether you were a rich guy from Harvard or a poor guy from South Boston. It was about your relationships who you love and who loves you is about what you do for others. Speaking of the Dalai Lama's, you know, uh, uh, birthday, it's about, um, I remember the Dalai Lama came to Stanford and I saw him and he said, look, you don't have to be a Buddhist to understand that just try to make yourself happy. The world's about being happy, but it doesn't take too long before you notice when you look around at all these unhappy people around you that you can't be happy if you don't have compassion for and help the people, you know, around you who have less. So it turns out it's all about relationships in the world and doing something for others, not yourself, not being self-centered. And so I'd say the one thing to do is, you know, find anything, any one little thing you're curious about. Go talk to, go meet people and talk to people. And from that, something's going to happen. An opportunity to do something is going to occur because the action in the world uh, it is where the compassion is. It's where the love is. It's where the interesting stuff is. And, you know, when you're stuck, it's easy to just sit in your room and, and, and think, geez, I don't have any ideas. And I'm telling you, you don't need any. The ideas are out in the world. And uh, people are full of stories. And they love telling them. And you've got a story, too. So get curious, try stuff, get out in the world and do something. Well, Bill, it's been an honor to have you on Inside Personal Growth and impart some wisdom to our listeners. I, for one, um, am so intrigued by this. I want to go take the course. You've got me like <laughs> biting at the bit. Now I just got to figure out where to do it. And actually, I'd love to deliver the course as well because I think it'd be good at it. Now, again, I did mention Dave Evans before, yeah. right in the middle of this podcast. But again, kudos to Dave and to Bill Burnett for this course called Designing Your Life. There's a workbook that you can get on Amazon. We'll have a link to that. There's actually the Designing Your Life book as well. It's in Kindle version and all the versions that you want. We're going to put up the links to that. And just a pleasure, Bill, to have you on today and take a little bit of time. Um, We will make certain that we get this out to as many people as possible and appreciate you taking the time to be on with me. Well, thank you very much as well for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.